I want to start with a question. What really happened at Jesus' birth? What really happened at Jesus' birth? Not the animals, not the stable, not the manger, not the wise men, not the gifts. From a deeper, bigger, theological, biblical perspective, and more accurately, from a covenant perspective, which is what we've been talking about the last few weeks, from a covenant perspective, covenantally, what really happened? We are at the end of our series uh, that we've been going over the last few weeks. The series is called A Son is Given. A Son is Given. And the goal has been to step back from this very familiar story, the story of Jesus' birth, and by doing so, to, to look at the big picture and my hope and my, my dream and my desire and my prayer is that our minds would be blown as to the, the momentous, the massive significance of the moment of Jesus' birth. And we've been doing that by focusing on one key concept, and it's from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which happens to be the uh, Bible app's verse of the day. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. And that's where the title comes from. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And as we close the message series, we're going to connect the dots. Everything we've talked about, all the big concepts that we've talked about, what we're going to focus on now is connecting the, the idea of the Son of God, the title of the Son of God, to the birth of Jesus, to understand how huge this moment was. So as we enter into that time, I want to invite you guys to pray with me now. Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord, for your mercy. I thank you, God, for this story, and I thank you, God, for what you did 2,000 years ago. Today, we remember the birth of Jesus. But God, help us to think of it and see it in a brand new way. Open our minds, blow our minds today, Father, in your name we pray. Amen. Now, I need to ask you guys a very, very tough question. It's a question that you probably have never asked this before in your life. And the reason why I know that is because I've never asked this question before in my life. And I'm a pastor, and I've studied, and I went to school for all this stuff, and I've never, ever asked myself this question because I thought I knew the answer, but turns out I was wrong. Here's the question that's put on the screen. When did Jesus become the Son of God? So we're focusing on the title, the Son of God. When did Jesus become the Son of God? Now maybe if you grew up in church, this question to you seems a little bit problematic. You're like, what do you mean? Jesus was always the Son of God, right? Like he's God, he was, he was there at the beginning, he was there at creation, he was there, he's eternal. So what do you mean? Jesus was always the Son of God. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to be teaching heresy today. All right, there's like nothing crazy going on. You'll understand what I'm saying. But there is a verse that we need to look at to help us understand that actually maybe that's not true. The answer to this question, did Jesus become the Son of God? The answer is actually yes and no. So let me share with you guys. We're going to do a, basically a study in Hebrews. And when I studied this, this kind of blew my mind. And I loved how it all brought everything together. But look at Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5. This is the author of Hebrews, Hebrews writing in, uh, and quoting and, and quoting scripture to convey what God is saying about Jesus. So he says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, and he's talking about Jesus, you are my son, 
Today, I have become your father. Weird, right? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Not, I am his father and he is my son. He says, I will be, I will become his father and he will be my son. This verse indicates that there is a moment in time that there was a point in which Jesus became the Son of God. That's not to say that he wasn't God, but as you guys know, if you've been tracking with us in this series, the Son of God title is less about who he is and more about why he came. Remember that? That's a really, really key concept we have to understand. So according to verse chapter 1, verse 5, there is a sense that he became the Son of God at some point. And I, I want to show this verse in the King James Version because uh, in this case, I think the King James actually reflects kind of what, what the original author is meant to say here. So Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5 in King James Version. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That word, begotten, that's one we focused on a lot in this series. That we know that Jesus, according to John chapter 3, verse 16, he's God's only begotten son. But then we also found out that Israel is God's only begotten son. David was God's only begotten son. And we realized that the begotten son was not really about, oh, is Jesus is an only child, and God only had one kid. That's not what it's about. But that the only begotten son title, what this really means is this. Let's put it on the screen. The only begotten son title was a covenant title given to those who serve as the anchor point of the covenants. Now, if you're confused by this and, and you weren't with us, I, I can understand that. you got to go back to part two and kind of rewatch this whole thing on our channel or, or listen to the podcast. But the title of the only begotten son was given to the person who was the anchor point of each of the covenants. So... Israel was called the begotten son because they were the anchor point of the covenant that God had made with him, the partnership. David was called the only begotten son because he was the anchor point and the starting point of the Davidic covenant. So that was a title given to him. So according to these verses, there was a moment in time when Jesus became the son of God from a covenant perspective. Again, not about who he is, like he's always God, but from a covenant perspective, it says today. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. Today. When was today, though? When was it that Jesus became the Son of God? We're going to move on to the next verse, and we'll keep going in the, in the, in the KJV. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6. Listen to what he said. He explains. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, let all the angels of God worship him. Do you guys get what it's saying here? I know the language is confusing. But what is he saying here? When he says, today I have begotten you, today you will be my son. And then the next verse he says, when he bringeth him into the world. In other words, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus became the son of God or took on that son of God role, that covenant role, that covenant title, when? At his birth. When Jesus was born, when the incarnation happened, when he became a human being, when he was born onto this earth, he took on and he became the son of God, according to the author of Hebrews. It was this moment that he took on this title because it was in this moment that he took on this mission, that the mission was actually taking place. So he was becoming the new son of God, the final son of God to bring in the new and final covenant. 
This is what Ty Gibson says about this in page 124. He says, Jesus became God's begotten and firstborn son at the point of his birth into our world. Now, we're talking about that. We're focusing on this story. And I don't think any of us have ever realized, oh, that moment was, was huge. Because that's the moment when Jesus became and took on the title and the role and the, 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 the purpose and the mission of the Son of God. But the, the reason why this is important is actually way bigger and actually way more meaningful. And that's what we're going to get into for the meat of this message. But I wanted you guys to understand what is happening as he's becoming the Son of God at his incarnation. Something else is happening and it's huge and it's like so awesome and it's just, it's, it's amazing. So we're going to look at the next chapter of Hebrews chapter 2. Now for a moment... We're going to do kind of like a Bible nerd theology nerd study right now, okay? But, but trust me, it's really, really cool, especially if you've been with us since part one. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses two, 8 to 13, you kind of see the whole story that we've been talking about all depicted and, and, and expressed in these few verses. So let's look at chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7. You made them, he's talking to God, God is you. You made them, them is humans, mankind. You made them a little lower than angels. You count, crowned them with glory and honor. Okay, so remember in the beginning, the, the first initial covenant, the Adamic covenant between God and Adam. He says, I'm going to build this world, I'm going to create this world, and I want you to take care of it. It's a good, fantastic world, and can you manage it so that more good comes from it? That was the first covenant. And the word he used was the word reign. I want you to rule over and reign over creation. That's why in this verse he uses the phrase, crown them with glory and honor. That's king, king words. That's royal words. That's power and authority. That's words that express that. So I want you guys to keep that phrase, crowned them with glory and honor. So in, in creation, God crowned them with glory and honor and made them rule over creation. But he made them little lower than angels. Why? Something happened at creation that they were supposed to be above angels and they were supposed to be up there. But something happened and so God had to bring them lower than the angels. In Genesis chapter 3, we know the story. They broke the covenant and sin entered the world. They said, we don't want your partnership. We want to do things our way. We want to define things on our terms. And so they broke the covenant and they became little less lower, little lower than angels. Verse 8. You gave them authority over all things. God gave humanity authority over all things. Again, rule and subdue creation. Now, when it says all things, it means nothing is left out. But we have not yet seen all things put under their authority. Let's, let, let's unpack this a little bit. It was God's plan to put everything under mankind's feet. Again, remember, crowned with glory and honor to rule and reign over creation. But... We haven't seen it yet. The reality is, is even though original humanity was given the power and authority to reign over humanity because they sinned, because they broke the covenant, now we're not really seeing it happen. Not everything is under our authority because of the sin that entered into the world as, as Adam and Eve broke the covenant. The original plan where we were supposed to create or live in this perfect world and, and, and continue this perfect world forward, that plan failed. Because the covenant was broken. Now let's go to the next verse. 
What we do see, this is really, this is when it starts getting real cool. What we do see, because we don't see all authority under humanity, right? Because everyone messed up. What we do see, though, is Jesus, who for a little while was given a possession a little lower than angels, because he became a human, because he was born into this world, that's what we're talking about today, a little lower than angels, and because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. There's that phrase again. He is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Jesus became a little lower than angels because he became a human, but he was crowned with glory and honor. So he was given authority and rule and power once again. Just like mankind at creation, he was given authority and power once again, but this time it's different. And we talked about this last week, that when Jesus came and took on the Son of God, he redefined power. Do you remember that last week? He redefined power. The power that we know and experience in this world is power characterized by might and force, oppression, but Jesus' power was a different kind of power. is a power motivated and characterized by sacrifice and service and love. So it says this, what we do see is Jesus who became like humans. He became a little lower than angels in the same position as humanity. But by living a life where he loved and sacrificed and served, he became crowned with glory and honor just like Adam and Eve were supposed to, but he's restored that, and he got their crown now, but it's a different kind of crown. It's not one of rule and authority and power and oppression, but one of love and service and sacrifice. Are you guys seeing this all connect in this verse, what we've been talking about the last few weeks? Now, this is where we get into why this matters, okay? So he's talking about Jesus and what Jesus did as he was born into this world, as he was entering into this place, and he was living a life of service and love. And look what it says two verses later in chapter 2, verse 11. Jesus, he's talking about. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. Real quick. The one who makes people holy, who is that? That's Jesus. Be confident when you say that. Jesus is the answer, all right? Jesus is the one who makes people holy. And those who are made holy, who are those? That's us. That's you and that's me. So Jesus, the one who makes people holy, and then us who, people who are made holy, what does it say about the relationship between these two? They are of the same family. I want you to think about that. Okay, the one who makes people holy, Jesus Christ, Son of God, and us, the sinners who make mistakes, who live in fear, who make the same mistakes over and over and over again, who break the covenant over and over and over again, they are of the same family. Right, like, I don't know about you, we say this term and this phrase, family of God, you've probably heard it a lot. We talk about church family and being a part of the family of God. God is our father, so we're in the family of God. But I want you guys to understand how crucial this is, that there was a time in history where we didn't have this, that there was no concept, no reality of a family of God, that we were all, so to speak, orphans in this reality. I want you guys to remember the context of all of this. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to part two and the graphics that I had. Remember this slide? Remember this? Adam and Eve, they were supposed to be in right relationship with God. They started out as a part of the family of God, but then when they broke the covenant, it messed things up. See, they were on a path that would lead to what I call covenant life. 
Adam and Eve were in perfect relationship and they were a part of the family God. And if they just stayed there, all of humanity, you and me and everyone in between, would be living on the path of covenant life. Which is great, which is good, which is wonderful, which is perfect. But they sinned. And when they did that, as we said in, in, in part two, in effect, they created like another timeline. So let's put another, the next slide on the screen. They created another path, another path that would lead to a broken life. And all of the Bible, all the story of the Bible is God using covenants with people to bring people back to the original plan, the original path, to bring them back into his family. But because of what Adam and Eve did, we were on the red line. And the red line leads to only one place. It leads to a broken, broken life. So at the time of the fall, all of humanity were tethered to Adam. And as Adam went and as humanity went, we would all go. This was the situation that we were in after the fall. So mankind, who was originally supposed to be a part of the family of God, because of broken covenant, we're no, longer, no, we're no longer in the family of God. But what we are learning today in Hebrews is that something is going on at the birth of Jesus. Something is going on that is bigger than just the birth of an important person. Something deeper, something more massive is happening in this moment. And it led the author of Hebrews to write this. I showed you only a part of chapter 2, verse 11. Listen to what it says. I'm going to read that again, the full verse this time. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. At the birth of Christ, something big is happening. And I want you guys, I want us to grasp it in our hearts and our minds today. This is what Ty Gibson says. He says, the incarnation was the act by which Jesus became the Son of God. We've established that. He came to our world to live out in our very flesh a life of covenantal trust toward God, to live as us and to model for us what true sonship looks like. In the most monumental and paradoxical act of empathetic love imaginable, God became the Son of God and is now our eternal brother. Okay, so, so I want you guys to understand what's going on. When Jesus entered into human flesh, yes, he became the son of God, but at the same time, he became your brother. He became your big brother. It's not just that he was the son of God, but as he entered into humanity, he became our eternal brother, and by doing so, he opens a way in, back into the family of God because he was born as one of us. He said, I cannot save them on my throne. I have to get inside. I have to be one of them. And as he aligns with us as our brother, he opens a way into his family. So to sum it up, what's really happening here? How do you get someone who's not in your family to become a part of your family? What do we call that? We call that adoption. So here's what's really happening at the birth of Jesus. Jesus' birth is our adoption day. It is the day where he becomes the son of God. It is the day when he becomes our brother, but it is the day he opens the way for all of us to rejoin the family of God. And we were not on that path. 
And we had no way to get back in, but by Jesus coming to this earth, living and being born like one of us, a little lower than angels in the words of Hebrews, he brings us into that original family. Now, I know through Jesus' life and his death and resurrection, he seals the deal, but that's when it all began. That's when it all began. That's when the adoption process truly started. The paperwork was drawn up. The names were written down. Your names were written down. God wrote his name, and he, he signed the paperwork. All that stuff was going on. That was the day. That was the moment. It was at his birth. And this concept is not foreign in Scripture. We see this in Galatians chapter 4. Look at what it says in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the set time had fully come... God did what? He sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, just like us, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. This is what's happening on that night when Jesus was born. Yeah, there were, there were animals and the wise men and the kings and the shepherds and all that stuff. But behind the scenes, the backdrop of what was happening in this moment was that Jesus was opening the way back into his family. It was our adoption day. Now, here's what's mind-blowing about this. Uh, Isaiah and I were talking about this concept, but this is what's mind-blowing. I want us to look at Luke chapter 3, because in Luke chapter 3, there is a Jesus' genealogy in Luke chapter 3. And I want you to notice the language in Luke chapter 3, verse 23, as it talks about Jesus' relationship to Joseph. Okay, Luke 23, 3, Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. So why did you put that in there? Why would you put that in there? That's kind of like, seems kind of insulting, kind of a slight against Jesus. So it was thought of Joseph. Why was it in there? Why was it so it was thought, or as it was supposed that he was the son of Joseph? Because in reality, Jesus was not the son of Joseph, was he? He was not the son of Joseph. Just like Ed was talking about during, during the, before we heard, heard that beautiful song, Joseph was not the father, the biological father of Jesus. So in reality, Jesus was adopted into Joseph's family. Right? Because he was not his son, but Joseph took him on, received him, and put him in his family legally. I don't know how it worked back then, but in, in, it's a way to understand it that Joseph adopted Jesus into the family of Joseph, receives him and makes him his son. Even though he didn't have to, he was not obligated to. He had every right to reject Mary and every right to reject Jesus, but he does not. He receives him. He receives a message from, from heaven through an angel, and he receives him, and he brings him into his family. And this was actually very critical. It was actually very critical for this to happen because the Messiah had to come from the line of David. Jesus technically wasn't of the line of David because he was born of God, born of the Holy Spirit. He was not biologically of the line of David, but Joseph adopting him into his family brings him into the family, and now Jesus is of the line of David. He had to do this in order for him to truly be the Messiah to fulfill prophecy. So Joseph chooses to do the right thing, makes Jesus his legal son, and here's it. This is the mind-blowing thing for me, right? I'm going to put it on the screen. Put it on the screen. 
by Joseph adopting Jesus into his family in faith, we are now adopted into Jesus' family by faith. That's crazy, right? Like, I've never seen that before, but, but that, that moment, this, this theme and this, this understanding of adoption of son, it worked both ways, and by it all coming together, we have an opportunity to be in the family of God. That's so crazy for me when I began to understand this. This, this whole thing, this is what's happening at the birth of Christ. This is what's happening in that stable, in that manger. It was the birth of the Son of God. It was a new and final covenant Son of God who would drive the covenant forward, who would, who would restore the timeline and, and, bring, and, and bring oneness to the multiverse, as we've said before. But it was also the birth of your big eternal brother. It was the birth of our eternal brother who being born as one of us stands with us as humans. Like as messed up as we are with all the mistakes we make, he stands with us and identifies as one of us. He puts his arms around us. He holds our hands. And look at this image that that the author of Hebrews put in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 13. Let's put it on the screen. Jesus is saying, Now, here am I, and the children God has given me. He recognizes and stands with us, this is my family. It's broken, and it's messed up, and they make mistakes. Covenant after covenant after covenant is broken, but I stand with my brothers. I stand with my sisters, and I'm bringing them home back to my father, and we're one day going to be one big happy family for eternity. And I'm going to come and make the way so that they can live with my dad. I stand with them in solidarity. It's a whole new facet of the story of Jesus' birth. It's so huge. And I thought it was the most appropriate way to end this series. To see how the Son of God is connected with his birth. To understand what is truly, truly happening in this moment. Now, at the end of each of these messages in this series, I, I shared a question. A question that was like, that kind of, I designed it to be like an obvious question, but then for us to realize that the obvious answer is not actually the answer. Right? So here were the questions that I asked in the last few messages. After the first one, I asked, how do you know God is love? Right? And we're like, yeah, what do you mean? Of course God is love. But, but the truth was, the reason we know God is love is not because of the things that happen to you in your life. It's because God has been relationally faithful through all the broken covenants. That's how we know God is love. And then the second question was, how much does God love you? And that was like, this much, like a lot, like as big, you know, to the moon and back, all that kind of stuff. But the truth is, you know how much God loves you because he was willing to rewrite history. As we looked at the graph, the graphic with the different plans and timelines, he was willing to go so far to rewrite history to be with you. That's how much he loves you. And then last week, we asked the question, why are we commanded to love? And we usually say, yeah, because being loving is good and we're supposed to love and be kind and that kind of stuff. No, no, but the reason why we are commanded to love is when we choose to love, when we choose to serve, when we choose to sacrifice, we contribute to the revolution of power that Jesus started. And by loving other people and serving other people, we say to the ruler of this world, remember the devil, the Satan, we say to him, we're not, we're not one of you. 
We don't stand with you. We stand with Jesus. We are defined by Jesus' version of power and life. That's why we're commanded to love. And then as I was writing this message, I was like, okay, I need one more question. Like, I can't not have a question today, right? Like, this is the last one. I got to have that question. And I really, I struggle with it. I was like, I don't have a question. And then it dawned on me, and I think God, God gave me this, this idea. The reason why there is no question to ask today is because in this moment, all three of these questions are answered. At the birth of Jesus, we see, we know that God is love. At the birth of Jesus, we see how much he loves us. And at the birth of Jesus, we understand or seeing firsthand why we are commanded to love. Let me explain what I mean by this. At the birth of Jesus, we know God is love because he is showing us that he's continually relationally faithful by bringing in a new son, the final son of the new covenant, right? The, all the covenants have broken, all the former sons have all failed, but now it's the new and final. He's not giving up. Once again, at the birth of Jesus, he's saying, I'm going to give you another covenant, another son of God, and he is not going to fail. We see that he's continually relationally faithful in the birth of Jesus. God shows us how much he loves us in this moment because now the plan to rewrite history, to rewrite the timeline, it's happening. The plan is being launched. The mission is a go when Jesus is born. He's actually doing it and putting into practice the plan. And we love, we know we are commanded to love, and we see in this moment the perfect and ultimate example of Jesus' version of power. God who is so far above us, God who is so much bigger than us, at his birth, this God lowers himself so he can stand with broken and sinful humanity to put his arms around us and say, these are my brothers and sisters in order to make us into sons and daughters once again. Like he shows us, he shows us and gives us the perfect example of what this looks like to live life with this kind of rule, with this kind of power, the power to sacrifice, to serve, and to love. So in this moment, there's no question. We see all of these questions answered at the birth of Jesus. This is what's really happening when this little baby was born. And I could not think of a better response than just to get down on my knees and say hallelujah. Like I could not think of what else I could do. There's no, there's no practical application to go do something, be something, go somewhere. Just stand before God and say hallelujah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I could not think of any other response than simply to do that. And to reflect on this verse once again, Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I think the only thing we can do right now is remember this story, remember what he did, reflect on it, and worship. Let's pray. God in heaven. We've been so, or at least I've been so blind to the truth 
of this story. And God, thank you for opening it up to us during the past four weeks, Lord. To realize, Father, that the Son of God is so much more than what we thought it was. Just a, a nickname for you, no. It describes something so much bigger and far greater. And Lord, in this season, as we remember the birth of Jesus, let us never forget, let us realize, let this moment just blow our minds that what was happening at your birth was far more than just the birth of an important and significant person, but it was a revolution, Lord. And it was in this moment that you stood with us and you declared that we are your children, that we are your brothers and your sisters. And you made a way for us to go back into your family, to rewrite the timeline, and be who we were always meant to be. Thank you, Father. Help us to celebrate that, remember that, and let us worship you because of that. In your name we pray. Amen.